As we come to Acts chapter 8, it has been a little over a decade since Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. In that decade, the disciples have been witnesses in Jerusalem, and because persecution forced them out of Jerusalem by God's perfect providence, they have ministered the gospel in Judea, which is southern Israel, and Samaria in northern Israel. The good news of the gospel is spreading, and some people don't like it at all. How can anyone not like the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus offers salvation, not by our efforts, but by his own sacrifice for us. What could possibly be wrong with this? Well, first it suggests that we need saving, that there's something wrong with us. How judgmental. It also suggests that there is only one way of salvation and other ways are wrong. How intolerant. It is a profound statement about how much we need the Lord that we reject the Lord who loves us and seeks to rescue us from ourselves. God cannot be put into a box, no matter how hard we try to do so. God cannot be put into a box of ethnicity or economy. He is not the God of one ethnic group or one social class. He is the one true God over all. And some people don't like it at all. The only reason that we like anything about God is because he has saved us from our sin and from ourselves. Thanks be to God. So that we might see the salvation more fully before we read the word, let's go before our God in prayer. Our Lord, by nature, we are lovers of ourself above you and it endlessly makes us miserable. But by your rich and great grace, you again and again come and rescue us, pulling us from ourselves, pulling us from the things that would tempt and tease and tantalize us in order to show us genuine rescue and to show us abundant life and abundant joy. Reveal these things again by sending your spirit to bear witness to the reading and preaching of your word. And help us also as we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. The astonishing account from Acts chapter 12. Listen to God's perfect word. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the feast of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. The chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. 
he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Who do you identify with in this account? Peter, stuck in prison in need of rescue? The Christians devoted in prayer for all who need rescue? The angel, the messenger of God who provides the rescue? Or are we more like Herod, trying to please other people? Or like the Jews, trying to get our way? Who do you identify with in this account? Let's look more closely. Verse 1 begins saying, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. Well, what time is this talking about? It was the time that the gospel was going not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. The church was recognizing that a person could become a Christian without having to first become Jewish. As a result, the Jewish leadership was losing their power and influence. It's the same thing that happens in politics today. When Republicans have the upper hand, the Democrats make attacks. When Democrats have the upper hand, Republicans make attacks. Those who have power want to maintain and increase their power. In this case, King Herod attempts to keep the Jewish leadership happy so that they stay in power, so that he can stay in power. And his solution is to kill James, the brother of John. This James, along with Peter and John, were the three main leaders in the early church. James is the first apostle who is martyred. Verse 3 is deeply disturbing. 
when he, that is Herod, when Herod saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. An innocent man is put to death, and this pleased a group of people. And so it gets continued. But is this not the kind of thing that we still see every day today? An innocent student is bullied to the pleasure of the cool kids, and more students are bullied as a result. A community is targeted for drug distribution to the pleasure of the dealers, and more families are devastated. To take pleasure in evil is evil. Proverbs 2.14 calls them wicked men who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil. On the contrary, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And so 2 Thessalonians speaks of those who will believe the lie so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. And Romans 1 speaks of those that exchange the truth for a lie, those that delight in evil, and God gives them over to that sin. They're consumed by their own sinfulness. And if we are honest, sometimes we take pleasure in that which God calls sin. To take pleasure in evil is evil. It's a great horror to be trapped in our own sin and a great salvation to be saved from this. But the salvation that we're going to read about here is not for those who are saved from a prison of their own making. In this case, it's those who make the prison those who take pleasure in evil who will be defeated. Of course, if you were to have to pick a side at the outset of who's going to be defeated and who's going to be victorious, it looks like you should pick the side of the wicked because they're in power. And this often seems to be the case in real life. Evil people who are surrounded by their sycophant posse because it looks like they win. They're the ones in power. And so consider the extreme setting. Peter isn't just arrested and put in prison. But according to verse four, he is guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Is Peter really as dangerous a criminal as this? Of course not. He is no danger to the public, but he was a threat to the public order. And we remember Pontius Pilate who gave a choice to the people to set free Jesus or Barabbas. And the people choose to set free Barabbas. Jesus simply preaching the truth was considered more dangerous than a murderer. He was a threat to the public order. Here Peter is considered public enemy number one by those who hate the truth and who love evil. Such is the natural man. Thanks be to God for our salvation. The account of salvation begins not in the prison cell, but begins with the church in prayer. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, I'm not a fan of the pithy sayings about the power of prayer because it comes off sounding very man-centered. So the people today say, my thoughts and prayers are with you. I'm sending you positive thoughts. Like somehow sending positive thoughts is supposed to make a difference, right? Like thinking positive thoughts, is it helping? My positive thought, yay me for sending thoughts and prayers. So it's not the power of prayer, it's the power of God that makes the difference. And yet prayer is a God-ordained means of grace. We are commanded to pray. James wrote to the church, you do not have because you do not ask God. 
R.C. Sproul wisely says, people who don't believe that prayer matters or that prayer works are people who simply don't pray. And so the church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. We are called earnestly to God to bring prayers of supplications and intercession. And our prayers are always answered. And yet while our prayers are always answered, it is almost never in the way we expect. In fact, we'll see that the church here is surprised to see the answer to their prayers about Peter when he shows up to their door later. And so it may sound holy and reformed to say, well, God is sovereign and he can do whatever he wants, whether I pray or not. Just as it may sound holy to say, well, God is sovereign, he can save anyone he wants, whether or not I go out and witness to that person. It sounds holy, but it is hogwash. God calls us to pray and God calls us to go and share the good news. These are the ordained means to accomplish his purposes. In fact, God's sovereignty is our encouragement to go and do these things. They will be successful because God will answer our prayers. So let's pray. God will save the lost. So let's evangelize. And God will answer in unexpected ways. That takes us to verse 6 and the unexpected answer to the prayers, the great rescue of Peter. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Do you note those three incredible words? Peter was sleeping. He's likely to be executed in the morning. Peter was sleeping. He's got one guard chained to his left hand, another guard chained to his right, public trial and execution in the morning, and Peter was sleeping soundly. That's really taking Jesus' words to heart. Do not worry about tomorrow, but tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What faith in Christ, whether I'm saved tonight or executed tomorrow, is in God's hands. So again, this is not about a pithy, well, you just have to have faith. In the wise words of Tim Keller, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. It isn't Peter's strong faith that saves him. It is a strong God that saves him. Amen? And so without suggesting that God will always save in this manner, isn't it just like God to save at the last possible moment? Peter had been arrested during the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, where he could have been delivered on any one of the previous nights. We often find ourselves in situations where we need deliverance and are unwilling to wait for it. God will often save at the last possible moment, letting us wait for the good purpose of leading us to trust him and accept his will in advance, whatever it may be. God's sovereignty in answering prayer is difficult to understand in the moment and sometimes even in this life. Why was Peter delivered and James executed. Scripture does not say why it happened, but only tells us that it happened. And we trust and accept God's will. The situation may seem hopeless, humanly speaking. It may seem unfair, humanly speaking. And yet we are called to rejoice in deliverance, to rejoice in salvation, 
to rejoice that we have been spared, we have been delivered, we have been saved. And I wonder if Charles Wesley had this passage in mind when he wrote the fourth verse of the hymn that we're going to sing in a few moments. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rise, went forth, and followed thee. It is with all that background and understanding that we are overwhelmed by the deliverance itself. Verse 7 begins the account of the angel of the Lord appearing, and he wakes up Peter. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. When did the Lord remove your chains? Some of you here remember the moment that your chains fell off. You experienced the moment of deliverance, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, quickening your soul to life. And you can give an account of the miracle of new birth when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When did the Lord remove your chains? Many of us were saved at an early age in ordinary and safe situations. Our parents led us to the Lord in our bedroom. A Sunday school teacher, a camp counselor, a friend at your side. That salvation is no less miraculous No less grace was required. In fact, what a great grace it is to be set free on the path of life so that you never embraced evil as much as you otherwise would. And what we remember is that it is salvation by grace that changes us. Not legalism, not moralism, not economic privilege, not anything that can come by our own doing or anything in this world. Rosaria Butterfield's account of deliverance shows the power of a gracious God and her life radically transformed. But she rightly reminds us there is a core difference between sharing the gospel with the lost and imposing a specific moral standard on the unconverted. The lost need the offer of the gospel, not simply a morality lesson. In the board game Monopoly, there is the get-out-of-jail-free card, right? At the beginning of the game, you certainly don't want to get this card because you want to keep moving around the board. Of course, if you're in trouble later in the game, sometimes you're glad you get in prison because then you don't have to land on other people's properties with all their houses. This past week, somebody tweeted a photo of uh, a get-out-of-a-meeting-free card. Now, that's a card that's good any time. Peter gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so do we. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't make it. We get out of jail free. In the game of Monopoly, you get the card by picking it up from the chance pile. In reality, it's not by chance, but by divine determination, we are rescued. And so the account of Peter's rescue becomes almost comical. Peter thinks the whole thing is a vision, passing by guards who are sleeping or otherwise incapacitated somehow, gates opening by themselves, and suddenly Peter comes to, standing in the middle of the street, realizing what has actually happened. And so he decides to go to the house where the church has been having their regular prayer meeting. What a wonderfully ironic scene as the church meets to pray for Peter, who then shows up at the door 
to the disbelief of the people praying. And it's almost as though they say to the servant girl, Rhoda, please don't disturb our praying for the rescue of Peter with news that Peter has been rescued. Meanwhile, Peter had an easier time getting out of prison than he has getting into this prayer meeting. He's banging on the door. Is somebody going to let me in? Hey, buddy, can you keep it down? We're praying in here, right? Verse 16 is great. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. (laughs) That's quite the understatement. In fact, the word there literally means something moved out of place. Everything was out of place. This is probably the way we ought to feel when God answers prayer, amazed, blown away, astonished by the Lord. Notice that Luke doesn't offer a rebuke for a lack of faith or disbelief. He depicts the natural human response to being astonished by the Lord. But the account doesn't end there. Here we see that God is mighty to save and mighty to judge the wicked. Peter has been rescued by our great God. What would become of those who elevated themselves above God? Well, I love the start of this in verse 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Yeah, you think? Two guys who were chained to Peter still have chains on their wrists. But the chains were no longer binding Peter result is the guards are executed. Divine judgment. King Herod is next. His efforts to please the Jewish leadership have failed. He's facing opposition further for the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so Herod makes some political moves. And the historian Josephus relates that Herod went to Caesarea in order to celebrate a festival held in honor of Emperor Claudius a festival of games held every five years and started on the first day of August to coincide with the emperor's birthday. And when the grain harvest had been completed so that all the merchants were there to buy wheat. And indeed Luke tells us in verse 20 that there was this deal making because they depended on the king's country for the food supply. But ultimately King Herod's attempts to glorify himself will fail and he too will face divine judgment. And we remember that earlier in the service, we read Daniel 4 and the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, who glorified himself above God and was driven mad for a time. The hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven ancient wonders of the world and generally attributed to King Nebuchadnezzar. So that as he looked out over this remarkable feat of engineering that happened under his royal reign, He exalted himself and said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? With those words still on his lips, he's driven mad and driven out to live with the wild animals until he repented. King Herod likewise promotes himself. And as the people exalt him, he does not correct them and is struck down. In fact, what happens to Herod here is so profound that it is not just recorded in scriptures, but recorded in history as well. The historian Josephus further describes the scene of Herod entering the arena at daybreak on the second day of the games, wearing a garment woven with silver thread so that Herod was illumined as the sun reflected on the cloak. And here's Josephus' account. 
Straight away, his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his own good, addressing him as a god. May you be propitious to us, they added, and if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. But shortly thereafter, he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope over his head, at once recognizing this harbinger of woes. He felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once. And there was intense pain from the start. Josephus goes on to record that Herod endured this pain for five days before finally dying. Luke graphically describes his death in verse 23. He was eaten by worms and died. So is the divine judgment against the one who killed the apostle James, who planned to kill Peter and ultimately the rest. There will always be those who oppose the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ. But in the end, we read in verse 24, the word of God continued to increase and spread. In the midst of persecution, imprisonment, political conspiracy, and divine judgment, the ministry of God's word doesn't just continue, but increases and spreads. The ministry multiplies. Don't mess with the Lord. God is mighty to save and to judge the wicked. May we take pleasure, not in evil, but let's take pleasure in the one who is pleased to love us and rescue us. And may the truth set us free. Amen.